The F1 pod on Off The Ball. Surprised by the comments from the FIA that they want more teams and less races. Over the last few years, all we've done is add races. So that less race comment in particular is an interesting Listen to one. the F1 pod on Off The Ball for free, wherever you get your podcasts. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it. All right, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod on Off The Ball. It's episode 16 with myself, Shane Hannon, weekly on Wednesdays after race weekends between now and the end of the season. We've only a few weeks left. In fact, uh, race weekends, that is. You'll get us in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feed as well for free wherever you get your podcasts. If you subscribe, of course, to Off The Ball, you can find them all there as well. Uh, the F1 pod on Off The Ball brought to you by Chicago Town Pizza. Real takeout taste for less with Chicago Town. The Mexico City Grand Prix was at the weekend. We'll we'll take a look back at that now. We've got uh, our fine guests for this week's episode. We've got John Watson, the five-time Grand Prix winner in Formula One, and the, the motorsport journalist and broadcaster Declan Quigley rejoins us as well. John and Declan, how are things? Everything's good, yeah, thanks. Yeah. A bit windy where you are, I gather. Just slightly windy. I think uh, Storm Kieran is fairly uh, fairly kicking off. Are, are you, you, you lads are coping okay so far with the weather? And it's right. That's the only thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> Riding my bike indoors is the new thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, lads, we were talking about something there before we, we came on, John. We, we were, um, Declan was asking you if you're still driving, still doing a bit. It's funny because I saw um, uh, an interview last week with one of the one of the Apollo astronauts. He's in, well into his 90s now. He's a, Bill Anders is his name. He flew on Apollo 8, first flight around the moon. And uh, still flying airplanes well into his 90s. He has to go and do his, uh, his annual medical and pass the test and and uh, still flying small airplanes but th- there was no temptation for you i gather to uh to keep driving fast cars well that's not the case i mean i do drive a fast car i've just picked up a very fast car right just over a week ago uh gt3 rs porsche with the full vizac aero pack on it i mean it's just an absolute horse of a car but in weather like this or it's a sunny day and sunday's car really but i don't race anymore that was the question that declan asked but i'm as competitive as ever and my biggest challenge these days is going into a supermarket car park in Oxford where they've got automatic camera recognition. And I raced against the guy alongside me to see who can get through or pass the barrier. That's my big buzz these days, beating somebody in a car park. Graphic <laughs> like Grand Prix superstar, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, get, it, it does it for me. Keeps the old adrenaline rush going. Never lose the adrenaline rush. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, was that competitive edge? You clearly had the competitive edge when it came to racing uh, cars, but did that competitive edge bleed over into other parts of your life? Or are you just a competitive person generally? Have you always been? I think I, I probably don't recognise as, as much as other people do in me. I know one good friend, we were fishing down on the beach at Pagham, says I'm the most competitive person he's ever met in his life. And I don't, I don't recognise that person. I just think I'm a normal person. But whatever for me is normal, clearly is different to normal people. So, I mean, I am competitive and everything I seem to do is a challenge and I challenge myself, whether it's going up and down to Heathrow Airport, trying to break the 45-minute barrier, which is pretty difficult because I'm breaking the speed limits as it is to get there in 45 minutes. <laughs> John John has uh, probably one of the best records in Formula One, and it's one that Max Verstappen cannot currently take from him, uh, which is, you know, our, our Lewis Hamilton, although that could change in the next couple of years if Andretti comes in. But he, he he's... The driver who won the Grand Prix from the lowest grid position ever, 20, 22nd on the grid. But he didn't just do that once. He won from 17th as well and had a pretty good cut at it, I think, in in um, 
Vegas in 82 as well for the World Championship, finishing second. Brilliant on street tracks, but amazing. You talk about a competitive buzz or a competitive instinct, uh, just this relentless drive to get past the car in front and an ability to do it as well, ability on the brakes. And we saw a little bit of that in, in Mexico last weekend. It was a kind of a racetrack that rewarded a driver who was very, very good on the brakes and was able to look after their brakes as well. And that was certainly uh, something that was exceptional in uh, in John's career. So are you hoping that Andretti don't come in, John? I suppose to so you can no, keep that record. Yes, I would well to come in because I think the grids are way too small. I mean, yeah. I would love to go back to the days back in the middle seventies when you had something like eighteen or nineteen teams entering a Grand Prix. Then on a Thursday, you had a set, thing called a pre-qualifying session for the the six or eight cars outside of the top thirty that would automatically go through to the Friday and the Saturday, and that would be whittled down then to a further twenty-six. But of course, the big problem right now, Declan, is everybody's coining it. The teams, 20 cars, 10 teams, they're making shed loads of money. And why do they want to dissipate it to the Andretti team? And I think that's the core issue. Um, there may be other issues, but that's the core issue. 10 teams don't want anybody else coming in, spoiling their party. I completely agree with you. I think it's absolutely nuts. I mean, I think it could only benefit the sport. You could create more variables, more opportunity for something a little bit crazier, uh, wonderful to happen. Uh, if another team comes in, it'll be good for the sport if you've got a new manufacturer coming in and you've got uh, coming more interest from the States. But like you say, nobody wants to spread the pot thin. I can kind of understand it if you're Williams and you need every penny that you're getting. But I I, I would continue to give Williams what they're getting and take that five, you know, five percent of all the money is made instantly goes to Ferrari and this legacy payment thing. I think it's nuts. I mean, I think Ferrari, obviously very important in the history of the sport, but you know, when Williams are around since the 70s. Uh, McLaren since the 60s it's it's I think that's a bananas thing that they have uh, this legacy well, it, it is, it's, a, it's historic it was part of the Concord agreement as part of the agreement negotiated by Bernie Eccleston in principle I'm not quite sure where that that loyalty or whatever payment you wish to call it if it still is as it was in its configuration when Bernie was doing the Concord agreement contract but whatever I mean it is a there is a, a special place in Formula One for Ferrari but to me to bring in a new team and a North American team particularly, and to bring in possibly an engine provider, supplier, manufacturer under the badge of Cadillac, albeit it may not be a GM Motors, actually they may go to another one of the other four manufacturers presently and then badge one of their engines as a Cadillac or a GM motor. Nevertheless, the, the Andretti name in a global context got very high recognition. And I think the team... Okay, if they plan to do it out of North America, or their base will be in North America, I'm not persuaded by that. I think they, they would need to be based in Europe and have their headquarters in Europe. But whatever, it would bring a new interest, apparently in North America particularly, and I think globally as well. And you know, just it's a little bit. I know you're saying about the teams at the bottom are struggling, but they're not really. They're making good money now through Netflix and all these other areas where the teams have evolved. I think that. You know, the teams at the bottom need a kick up the backside by a new team coming in to give them a bit of a reality check. Now, yes, I yes. can't say that because I'm not a team principal, mm -hmm. but I'm, I may be speaking for a lot of the fans out there who would like to see an Andretti team or any other team. And I know there was a pretty, I'm not sure it was Trevor Carlin's team or for Formula 3 team, or maybe it was, so was high-tech. High-tech put in an application as another team to make it 12 teams, and that application... I understand was rejected. 
I think 12 teams is 12 teams is a nice round number. A dozen teams makes a lot of sense to me. 24 cars in the grid, and it can only be good for the fans. That's all that matters. Good for the fans. Suppose the fans would yeah. be happy enough. Certainly, they take it. There are the complications, the politics. I suppose that you mentioned, Declan, as well. It's funny, Declan. Like you'd have spoken to to a lot of these drivers over the years, not just in Formula One, but in other uh, forms of motorsport. Um, like people like John, we were talking about competitiveness there. Do you notice like similar similar personality traits, similar traits generally in in these guys and girls? Like uh, competitiveness, just being being one of them. But are, are they all fairly similar in terms of mindset? Oh, it's it's yeah, it's not the bit extra; it's the bit missing, isn't it? I mean, the t- total focus um, to the point of being boring. I would say that racing drivers are probably a slightly different breed now than they were in John's era. I think um, uh, the 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 ever present, you know, possibility that you weren't going to see your hotel room when you left it in the morning again uh, that evening uh, made for a slightly more cavalier attitude to the thing and people found a way to enjoy their lives in in a you know in a more expansive way <laughs> i think uh, in many respects they are data engineers they are uh, technicians um but that that absolute fundamental drive is 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 a key factor i i look at lewis hamilton's performances um Fernando Alonso's performances. I've gone on about this on the on the podcast before. Um, I don't know how much fun they'd be to hang out with, but they are just remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Lewis Hamilton is just greatest of all time for me in that he's just his. his I mean, what is he up on three hundred and twenty nine or something participations? Uh, Alonso's the three seventy five mark or something like that. It's just nuts. Yeah. 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 I mean- I mean, so Lewis and uh, Alonso, they're now the senior citizens. Alonso, 42 years of age. I wouldn't mind hanging out with them because I reckon the guy knows his way around the world. He would know a good restaurant, a good wine, a nice place to go and have a great meal. He might even take me to a club and I could even get up and do my little bit in the dance floor. Wouldn't do it for too long. Wouldn't want any social media catching it. But it's a different attitude. And I mean, think of all the, 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 the new generation, maybe the generation that would be uh, well, Oscar Piastri is the newest of the new generation. I'd go out with them any day of the week because I think there's a brilliant young driver who I would like to know more about and understand. But then you've got George Russell, uh, Lando Norris, uh, Alex Albon. They would be fun, but basically their fun is social media-based fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would probably get drunk in a wine gum if they had a chance. <laughs> yeah, it's a different. They, they are relentlessly articulate and and um, fundamentally intelligent. I mean, even the, the you know the dopiest Grand Prix driver and people like to criticise certain people on social media and pick them out and kind of you know act like they're not bright. They're really really bright. I mean, um, anyone at this level, at Formula One level of, of motorsport is very articulate and able to absorb so many different inputs. I think the ability of these guys to um, chat on the radio, make all the various adjustments that they've got to do on the steering wheel while braking, changing down, finding a, 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 an apex and getting on the throttle at just the right moment. But, and doing but, but Declan, it would yeah. be as boring as you know what. I know what you're saying. You're quite right. They're more like astronauts than they are racing drivers. And the, the tasks that they have to carry out by their driving, speaking to the team, making adjustments in a variety of areas in the race car. And they're exceptionally good at doing that. But do you want to go out with people that are sort of technophobic in their mentality and uh, they haven't grown up? I mean, you're not my age, but you're sort of within, what, a couple of decades. And when you were growing up in Dublin or wherever you grew up, you knew how to enjoy yourself as a young man. These kids have only known one thing in their life. 
And that's yeah. being prepped one way or another to compete at the highest level of motorsport. And they've lost something, I believe, which is fundamental to every young person's you know, period of transition from being a child to a teenager to being sort of semi-grown up to being an adult. And I think there's a big void in the lives of many of these competitors, contemporary competitors, that at, at a later phase in their life, they're going to go, oh, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, what's what's left after? Yeah, is that the case though, John? That uh, it's similar in other sports. Like maybe they they can rationalize it by saying, "Well, the career only gets us to well, if you're Hamilton or Alonso, late thirties, early forties. Beyond that, you have time to enjoy yourself." But you're saying while you're still a young young person, I guess to have those those years to really celebrate. But I guess they they have the off season as well. Well, the off season is is restricted because it finishes the, the day or a couple of days, depending if you're doing a test in Abu Dhabi following the Grand Prix. So let's say the season ends early part of December. And then you've got maybe the best part of a month, five weeks, six weeks at, at most. But a lot of that time will be spent going back to the workshops, going through the, the detail of the, the 24 car, maybe in a simulator, trying to assimilate yourself with whatever the technical changes that are being introduced. So there is a small window. Again, I, I don't always want to refer back to my generation, but we had a, a season that ended usually about the end of September, early October. And from that point, all the way through to Christmas, yeah, you may have had some testing, but nothing of, of the level and the commitment that the current drivers would be required to, to fulfill. And then you'd rock up in South America, feeling about 10 pounds overweight, having had too much turkey and maybe a few, few too many champagne cocktails and Irish coffees and whatever. And you'd sweat like a pig in a racing car in extreme conditions, uh, but you'd lose about three or four pounds, maybe more in some cases. And by the time you got back to Europe, you're race fit. Yeah, John's touching on a point that I've always felt strongly about in that I think there are too many Grand Prix. I think that the value of winning a Formula One race is slightly diluted and diminished by the fact that there's just a blizzard of them. Mm. Um, of course, these days, I mean, if you, anyone beats Verstappen, it's it's you know noteworthy and extraordinary, and it's an amazing addition to your CV. Um, but it's um, he, he's won 31 Grand Prix in the last two years. I mean, that's, you know, that's well, just off the beat. I mean, it's, too many some, it's, it's, it's a summary of, of what Red Bull have done from a technical perspective. They've produced a phenomenal car. But in, in Max Verstappen, he has evolved. And in particular, since his first championship win in 21, there was a transition in his, I think, approach and outlook and style of racing. And he is now in that early phase of what you might describe as a purple patch. And he's, he's driving with his head, not just his feet. He, he's got all the skills and the speed the, that he had when he was raw and young or younger than he is now. And he can yeah. continue in doing what he's doing. He hasn't re been required to, to drive and take high-level risks as he was doing up to 19, up until 21. Uh, that's sort of, a, to me, a night and day change. He owns the team. And yeah. Perez is not performing. Um, we've had dominant eras in the past. I mean, you look back to McLaren in '88, and and Senna Prost at least gave us a great match. Okay, they, you know, everyone else on the grid was an also ran because of the the dominance of McLaren. But it was you didn't really notice it to the same extent because it was just so um, exciting what was happening with them. But Perez isn't isn't performing at the moment, and we saw last weekend the 
the, the sort of impetuosity of a man who's under pressure, which will compare to what John is talking about with Verstappen when he arrived in. He wasn't quite fully formed. He wasn't far off no, no, at 16, but he wasn't he wasn't the full package. Now he absolutely is. He's got that confidence. He's got the team. He's got the car. He knows that the race will come to him. He doesn't have to have to push it. Of course, now they're nailing the starts, which is an absolute disaster, isn't it? You know, they're they're having the slightly the odd slightly ropey qualifying performance, but it's okay because they can get it off the line uh, like a like a dragster, um, which is uh, definitely making potentially it's slightly less interesting if that prevails for the for the remaining three races. But for Stappen's, yeah, he's certainly in a new place, isn't he? In, in the yeah, last and, well, he's, he's evolved, he's matured. He, he was seventeen when he came and did his first Grand Prix. He's what age? He's 24, 25. Uh, he's just the real deal. But again, referring back, a driver of my generation or before me would have been 10 years older. So Max is 25 or 26. The generation of drivers from the 60s, maybe the 70s, would have been reaching maturity in their middle 30s. That generational maturity has come back by a virtual decade. Yeah. And again, that's why I'm, I'm, I feel that the, the younger drivers, and Max is a part of that, because his whole life has been based on becoming a Formula One world champion. What have these people done in their lives? A, a very important part, a transitional part of your life, from being in your short trousers to getting your first pair of long trousers, to becoming a teenager, to becoming a, a pain in the you-know-what as a teenager, going out and doing silly things. They're not really, and anyway, banging on enough about all that stuff. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fair point, though. It is a fair point. Um, yeah, cause they, they, they do lose out on a lot. You, you kind of don't think about the human aspect of it all, really. Uh, you, you've touched on uh, Sergio Perez already, guys. We might as well pick up on him when we're talking Mexico because uh, adored by the home fans, um, Declan, and, and I mean, what was the famous phrase? You, you can't lose a race on, or you can't win a race on turn one, but you can certainly lose a race. And that was the case for, for Checo Perez at the weekend. I heard someone give him a, a, a potential defence by saying that he may not have known that Verstappen was up the inside of Leclerc. I think that's nuts because uh, Perez had to come past Verstappen to get a run around the outside. So you have to log that on your way. Ab- absolutely. These big trucks, you don't have a lot of visibility. He's on the other side of Leclerc. But that's I mean, he did. He did put the hand up afterwards and say he's got to run on the flip side of that. That particular racetrack is all right angles, isn't it? And uh, maybe your only chance, we saw with Sonoda as well, it's impetuous moves down the outside. You come to a point where you're a little bit ahead, you turn in, you have to turn in. You, I mean, you just as a racing driver, you're not going to back out of that situation. But Perez, at some point in the process, when he's gone deep on the brakes, had to had to back out of it. But then he might have emerged from the corner fifth and his, his big shot at glory. He probably thought that was one shot for the win. He's got to get track precision early in the race. He's got to get the first call in the pit stops. And and he's a man under pressure. I mean, out of nowhere, uh, Daniel Ricciardo is emerging as a potential replacement for him at Red Bull, which is just uh, uh, beggar's belief. And, I, and I'm not 100% sure that Ricciardo is going to be able to sustain this, this renewed sort of uh, return to form. Um, but we'll see. But we'll see. But uh, but certainly, <clears throat> I would say uh, Sergio Perez is a man. I would be surprised if Max Verstappen is not lobbying to keep him because it's a very comfortable situation for him. But it's not a good situation for the team. Um, they need to. It's it, the constructors' championship. You've got to have two fast ones. It's not even a good thing for Max Verstappen because ultimately, if there's any little slip in the in the standards of of 
you know, the technical department in putting that car together, then, and he himself needs to up his game to make sure they're getting the most out of the car. They know what it's capable of doing. Um, so, yeah, they, they either Paris, Paris does something remarkable in the last three races or he's, he's got to be out, I think. Well, I, I think, first of all, the, the kind of support that Perez has had has unsurprisingly come from Esteban Gutierrez, who just today sort of offered up a, an opinion, well, maybe uh, part of the problem going into turn one was actually Max coming down the right-hand side of the circuit into turn one, squeezed Leclerc a little bit, which then squeezed Leclerc to the left. When my little innocent mate, uh, Sergio Perez, was trying to make a move around the outside. You know, that's a bit of sort of nepotism in terms of nationality from Gutierrez. And frankly, I don't have a lot of respect for his opinion because that's a lot of rubbish. The fact is that Perez made a punt down the outside. He nearly got away with it, but three wide going into turn one. And Leclerc had nowhere to go. He couldn't suddenly vanish. And Perez hadn't cleared Leclerc sufficiently to be able to sweep around the outside of the Ferrari and certainly gain another position. But he remember, he had a great start. He made a great run down, straight down into turn one, but just over-ambitious in his aspirations. What he has to do in the final three, hold on, what he has to do in the final three races is redeem himself within the eyes of the team. He has got to get these last Brazil, Las Vegas, new to everybody, don't know, nighttime race, cold temperatures, finally Abu Dhabi. He's got to go out there and perform as he was doing at the beginning of the season. And I think the team would be reluctant to replace him on a variety of reasons. A, he's got a contract. B, there's probably a lot of benefits to having a Mexican driver in the team from a commercial perspective with the brand, the sponsor brand, Red Bull. He would have to make three appalling final races this year for the team to say, listen, under all the love and circumstances that we want to give you, just we cannot continue doing this. You've just not given us enough reason to see how we can, can even though that we've got a contract, we think it's just, what well, this is too much. I would hope that Perez can do a lot better than he did in Mexico and redeem himself. And you might be right, Max might like a, a driver like Perez, who he knows on his day can challenge him, but he hasn't had many of those days in the last season. Yeah, Danny Rick would sell a lot of fizzy drink, wouldn't he? <laughs> of energy drink, would he? Uh, would he not be good for them too? He, he would be, and that's another reason why Danny would be could be brought back into the team. But I tend to concur with what you've mentioned about whether one sort of summer, one well, one performance, particularly at the weekend in Mexico, would be sufficient to make that step back into the Red Bull team. Remember, Danny left the team four seasons ago because he decided he wanted to go out and be his own man in a team where he was the team principal, so team leader. And Max has only become stronger and stronger in Red Bull. He's more embedded than ever. So for Danny to go back in and think he's going to walk in and it's going to be a walk in the park, look, he's a great racer. He is a great overtaker. He, he's good in the brakes as well. And that was a strong performance throughout the weekend from Danny, but it's a different deal doing it in Alpha Tori, which is not a, a front row grid car under normal circumstances. He flattered that car, I think, but doing it in Red Bull with all the the, the pressure of being then that in, in the principal team with you know, people around and expectations, and they're looking around who's going to replace Max maybe in three or five years' time should he decide to retire. They're not thinking about who's going to replace Perez. Perez can be replaced relatively simply, assuming their contract negotiations can be concluded uh, satisfactorily. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like, would you, John, would you, if you were Christian Horner, place Perez at this juncture? Like, you look at Daniel Ricciardo, as you say, there, there are commercial things that have to come into this as well. But from a purely driving perspective, uh, you look at Daniel Ricciardo's race at the weekend and his qualifying was sublime. Would you yes. replace him? At the minute, I would give Perez three races and I would be spelled out to him very clearly that this is your deal, this is your drive on the line. But I would give him that opportunity because I would rather have him in the team, knowing how he is capable of performing and how he can contribute to the team's overall results, which therefore equates to team's income. So that's another stream that the team has got to be very conscious of. And whether Danny would do a better job over the course of the season, that's speculation. We don't know. We All we know is he left the team because he felt that going up against Max with the direction of favour within the team that Max was benefiting from, he wasn't going to be able to achieve his aspiration of being a world champion. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Guys, we, we, I think we, you I, need to change it up occasionally. I think you need to shake it up a little bit just so, you know, it, nobody, people don't need to be comfortable in their position for too long because, and, and I think it would probably benefit Max Verstappen and ultimately benefit Red Bull if they had a different driver pairing just to shake it up a little bit. And if Perez, you know, Put him in AlphaTauri and see how fast that thing is. Because, you know, uh, I, John said that um, Danny Rick was maybe flattering the, the the automobile. I think it could be the other way around, that maybe it wasn't such a bad car all year after all. And and we're finding, putting, well, you know... Liam Lawson jumped into the car and did an excellent job. Yeah. Sonoda has been sort of in, in and out of the top 10 on occasions. But suddenly Danny's there. Uh, in Hungary, Danny did a great job. In Belgium, Sonoda did a great job. Then, you know, obviously, Sam brought the wrist issue came back and, and Austin wasn't the, the best drive, but it was a first drive in about six, eight, six, seven weeks with an injury, a hand injury, but a great run in Mexico. Yeah. 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 It's hard to judge. It is hard to judge. I mean, you have to judge R- Ricardo over the next three races in much the same way you have to make the same judgment on Perez. Yeah. As you say, Brazil, Vegas and uh, Abu Dhabi will tell a lot of these stories. Well, and well Vegas, particular, Vegas particularly, because it's a, going to be a nighttime race. And in the desert at this time of year, when the sun goes down, the temperatures plummet like a stone. Mm. And again, what the track will be like, we have no one's seen the track or training, all the simulation. No one's actually had a chance to drive on this track. What the track surface will be like. It's, it's a real, you know. What's, what's it like driving around a car park in Vegas? What's it like driving around a car park in Vegas? Because famously, of course, in your well, day, the uh, yeah, it was in Caesars Palace. Declan, when I was there, first of all, it was basically middle of September. And daytime temperatures were like middle 80s, low 90s. Hot, but dry heat. In the evening, when the sun fell down behind the, the mountains, the Rockies or whatever, then the temperature did fall away very quickly. We're now going to be two months later in the calendar going to Las Vegas. So, I mean... That I know people are concerned about the ter- even Lando Norris said, Are we going to have to put on hand warmers? Are we going to get so cold? We'd have to hold them up like that to hold up PK. Lando, Lando the drove a, an outstanding race in Mexico, and I'm not his biggest fan, but he did an outstanding job in Mexico. I don't know how he found the pace, don't know what he did, I don't know what the team did, but suddenly he was overtaking, catching, and overtaking drivers, which nobody else was doing. I love the way the the, uh, the ex-professional athletes, it's like Roy Keane. Roy Keane always gives out about the, the Premier League footballers wearing the, the black gloves during the winter the winter matches. So it's similar here, John. I think the the uh, the, the previous generation... I tell you what, Shane, you get Roy on with me. I tell you what, 
You had the lawyer. You had the lawyers knocking on your door. <laughs> You'd have a lot in common, I'm sure, 100. Uh, percent On that note, guys, we'll take a very, very short ad break. We'll be back in just a second. It's the F1 Pod on Off the Ball. It's episode 16 with John Watson and Declan Quigley, and we'll be back in just a second. Hello, Shane Hannan here, the host of the F1 Pod on Off the Ball, which is available every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the episode proper, however, I did want to take a quick moment to mention our sponsors of the F1 Pod, Chicago Town Pizza. And sure, when you're watching the Grand Prix action across the weekend, why not enjoy it with a pepperoni Chicago Town stuffed crust pizza? It's takeaway taste at home. It's the F1 Pod from Off the Ball with thanks to Chicago Town Takeaway's unique fresh dough pizza. Yeah, we go to town on it. Now, without further ado, the F1 pod. The F1 pod on Off The Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One, yeah, we go to town on it. Okay, you're very welcome back to the F1 pod on Off The Ball, episode 16 here. We're live weekly between uh, now and the end of the season, only a few weeks left on Wednesdays after race weekends. You'll get us for free in the F1 pod podcast feed and the Off The Ball daily podcast feeds as well. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We've got John Watson, the five-time Formula One Grand Prix winner, and Declan Quigley, the motorsport journalist and broadcaster with us this week. Uh, lads, we've been touching on, on different aspects of the uh, the Mexico City Grand Prix at the weekend. I guess, Declan, we should we should touch on um, a man you, you mentioned at the very start of the episode, Lewis Hamilton. Um, just brilliant. Uh, you, you do run out of superlatives to talk about Lewis Hamilton, but um, his entire weekend was just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean they're they're hooked up on Sunday, but not going so well on Saturdays. Um, and we we kind of wondered how they were going to, re- you know, respond after the ride height issue and um, skid block disqualification from the previous weekend. Um, and they they were at nothing. I mean they just couldn't get that car organised. It didn't. Uh, um, Hamilton wasn't enjoying it at all. Uh, but he somehow pulled something out on the on race day. And hearing Toto Wolff and others in the team extolling his virtues as a as a as a driver who can manage a race. I mean, in some ways, this is like old time sports car racing because it's constantly they're trying to manage the tires, keep those tires in a certain window, keep them, you know, and not push. You know, there's always the temptation that you can push a little bit and then suddenly you send the tires off a cliff. Uh, at the same time, they've got to look after their their, their brakes and let make those brakes last. Uh, he was talking about, he was lifting and coasting for 300 meters um, for large chunks of that, uh, of that Grand Prix. But he kept those temperatures just where they needed to be for tires and for brakes. Uh, everything else was was working well. He was making overtakes. Compare him with Russell. Like uh, George Russell is probably on his day potentially at this point in the in the in the proceedings. You know, half a tenth faster than than uh, Lewis Hamilton over one lap. You kind of have to accept that that's a possibility that maybe his ultimate paces has just dropped off a notch. But his ability to manage an event in its entirety, to take it all in, to absorb what the automobile is doing, and to to look after it and get it to its you know within point one of its absolute one hundred percent potential, lap after lap across the balance of a whole race. It's um. It's 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 wonderful to behold. He is he is on a different level. In and I wonder will George Russell, you know, acquire that experience over time and then retain the speed that he needs to be a, a comparable driver with uh, with Lewis Hamilton. We're we're actually heading to Brazil, aren't we, next week? And that's you know Russell won that one last year, so it'll be interesting to see um, how he bounces back. But the compare and contrast, Russell wasn't at it. He was you know screwing the tires, uh, struggled with brakes. You know, it was quite a an interesting comparison between the two of them. Well, it was the fingle, sort of fickle finger of fate. That's what I would describe how I'd describe the circuit because nobody anticipated two Ferraris locking at the front door <laughs> of the grid and qualifying. Red Bull were not the front. Every sort of Red Max is going to be in pool. 
the nature of the circuit, the ambient temperatures, track temperatures, altitude, lots of factors, tires, how soon can you bring a new set of tires in? Is it Can you go quickly on the outlap or you only go quickly in the last six? There were so many elements that complicated qualifying and some people dialed it in and got it right and some people it didn't work. But what Lewis illustrated, and I think Declan summed it up, he is a, a fully accomplished capable, experienced, and still extremely fast race driver. There's a difference between being a driver who can go out and knock out qualifying laps and look really, oh, look at me, I've done a, a wonderful qualifying lap, I'm quicker than everybody else. But the point of all this is, can you drive a race? Max was never under pressure. It was just He was on a Sunday run, really. Lewis, having to lift and coast, not a thing that most people know a race driver would do, but because of the, the issues of overheating both engine and brakes. So you'd come down the straight, you just lift off, let the car coast for maybe 100 metres or a little bit more, and then you apply your brakes and you do it all in a very progressive and, and you might almost just say gentle manner. At the same time, you've got to maintain a level of speed. And I'll give you an illustration of what I'm saying. Silverstone 1981, Find myself in the lead of the race, 10 laps to go. Ron Dennis gets on the old radio and says, slow down, slow down. <laughs> so what do you do to slow down? Because Ron didn't want me to damage the car, blow the car up. So the only way I did, or what I did, and I thought was right, was I didn't want to lose my rhythm and driving. I didn't want to change anything I was doing, basically, with the steering wheel. So all I did was I just reduced the RPM over the period of the 10 laps. I went from revving the engine to 10,600 RPM down to about 9,000. That's 1,600 RPM below what the engine's capacity is, maybe giving away 25 or 30, 40 horsepower. It made about a couple of tenths of a second a lap difference. And actually, it's a way in which you can manage a situation. I was getting an instruction, slow down. I don't think Lewis has been told to slow down, but he would have been being given information all the time from the pits, from Bono and his, everybody else working alongside his car, what he can do, more importantly, what he is not going to be allowed to do. And that was maybe what made Lewis's drive such an outstanding drive, because he was managing issues and still running sufficiently quickly to finish, what, was it 10, 12 seconds behind Max at the end? Mm. Yeah, he's, he said he had a bash. He said he, he's just that as he came close to the end of the race, he just... Uh, Push the tires a little bit and see if they, oh, yeah, they you know, so he did 22 lap. dead or something and, yeah, and Verstappen did a 21.9, the same, the same lap. So he thought Verstappen's going to ease, he's coasting here. There's absolutely no point in taking a risk. And then obviously on the last lap, he did, um, you know, he, he yeah. managed to come up with fastest lap. Remarkable. Like. Mm. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that, that's, that, that is testament to Lewis at his age. And it's the kind of skill that Fernando Alonso's got. Fernando was being so frustrated right now by the drop-off in performance of the Aston Martin. Again, I'm reading this morning, is Fernando about to announce his retirement? Please, Fernando, do never retire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never retire. Somebody, they may, somebody may retire him eventually, but don't volunteer to retire. Formula One needs you. Give us your plea, John. We'll, we'll, we'll send this out and we'll tag Fernando Alonso in as many of these posts as we can. Give Listen, us your plea to Fernando not to retire. I'll tell you what you do. You bring him over to Galway in the Galway Oyster Festival. We'll get him lashed up and pints of Guinness and the best oysters in the world and we'll give him a good talking to. <laughs> he is, <laughs> he is, 
He is. He would probably be up for it. He's an extraordinary talent, though, uh, John, isn't he? Like he, he's just immense and, and is so important for the sport as well. Very much so. And I mean, for a very long time, the reason that Spanish Formula One or Spanish television followed Formula One was exclusively because Fernando Alonso won two world championships back to back. Should have won more when he was at Ferrari, but it never happened. And now the prospect of winning a world championship in the team he is in is is, is a, it's a lovely dream. But the reality is. It's unlikely to happen unless there's a, there's a bolt of lightning of such power that it re-energizes that entire team and takes them forward technically and in every other sense and puts them in the position that Red Bull is in. But I don't think that's likely to happen. Yeah. Get, guys, we're touching on um, uh, Mercedes there, and I guess uh, Declan as well, off-track issues come to come to the rise. But um, uh, Mike Elliott's, decision to, to walk away from the team. Chief Technical Officer Mike Elliott, uh, after 11, 11 years, uh, and, and Toto Wolff saying during the week, this was entirely Mike Elliott's decision and he fully supports it, says it's the right decision for him. Uh, I mean, he, he he's clearly been been there for, for a period of, of great success. You know, the, the I mean, eight consecutive uh, Constructors' Championships, albeit this season, they haven't won a race, so it, it feels like the right time to walk away. Well, he took responsibility, didn't he, for the design of the last uh, last couple of cars, which have mm. been um, mingers, really, haven't they, by the standards of, of uh, Mercedes? Yeah, I mean, you talk about continuity in a team, um, and particularly in the in the technical office. I think it's important that you do sort of keep your personnel. Um, plus, there's an awful lot of knowledge potentially going to another team. Who's it going to be? And lots of rumours about Ferrari. Maybe it's Aston Martin. They they struggled to develop a car during the year. Um, and let's talk about Williams. Let's talk about um, Andretti as well. Um, I don't know. Uh, is this, but James Allison is back, isn't he? So I think that's uh, an interesting switch that uh, James Allison is now taking overall responsibility for the design direction. Um, looks like they might have turned a corner this year, but the car is very peaky still. Um, I mean, everyone assumed that they would would have caught up this year, and it hasn't. It hasn't happened, and it's um, it must be a worrying time for them. I did see one commentator quite um, sort of astutely point out that uh, Red Bull didn't win for years. But they kept their um, technical department more or less intact, and Adrian Newey at the top of that, and whatever alchemy he has, he eventually managed to 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 put it back in. Uh, of course, across those years, Red Bull had all their issues with uh, with engines, so they could constantly blame the power unit. Uh, Mercedes have been strong, maybe not quite as strong these days, but um, uh, it looked like, in fairness, that they they were a little bit stronger in power unit terms. In Mexico, mm. having said that, they're very draggy on the straight, as Hamilton would say, and they're suffering aerodynamically, and they're not fast in a straight line. So maybe the power unit is part of the part of the yeah, issue ultimately. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was talking earlier about the the sometimes the a need for change, a need for evolution. Uh, these technical departments have literally hundreds and hundreds of people. So potentially, you change one person, and it it ought not make an absolute radical change to the um, to the development of the of the cars. Certainly, you not wouldn't necessarily spot it in the, the within a couple of months, but you know you might see it two years down the line. So we'll only know know in the fullness of time whether this is uh, a major issue. Potentially, there's a little bit of information going to another team, but that doesn't always work out as well. In the in the it, it, across the the history of the sport, you know, you you see about these these big poachings. You know, they poach a technical director and they download the guy and they think they're going to suddenly go to a new place space wise, and it doesn't happen at all because it's uh, there's so many different uh, moving parts in the in the creation of it. 
of a, of an automobile. Uh, but it suggests that there might be a little bit of um, angst and worry and uh, anxiety in the in the Mercedes setup. Yeah. yeah. Well, remember, over the last couple of seasons, a lot of people evacuated from Mercedes, so this is not an unusual situation. And I think a lot of the problem that teams have got is you you get a group of engineers who are at the very top of their departments. And they, then they, they become the incumbents and they ain't moving, they ain't shifting. And you've got this surge coming from behind young talent, fresh talent, new ideas, lateral thinking. Where are they going to go? And they're pushing to be given more senior, more responsible positions in every element, aero, design, mechanical, whatever. And I don't know whether that's the, this is the case at Mercedes right now or this is just a, simply a voluntary move. I've done the bit at Mercedes time to move on to new pastures. I don't know where he will end up. Um, wait to see. But Declan, you'll scan the internet as much as probably I do, and it'll suddenly pop up somewhere. But he may have to serve out a gardening leave period anyway. So any knowledge and information he has will be minimally six months behind, and maybe even longer, if, if depending on the contractual, uh, how the contractual obligations and the severances and the departures are all worked out. But I do feel it's a bit like looking at this lack of movement within the, within the drivers within Formula One. There's a lot of drivers who are able to continue racing, do a good enough job, and they're, they're, they're acting like a roadblock to younger talent. I mean, Oliver Berman did a brilliant job on the Haas uh, in that Friday morning run. Team full of praise for him, but they're not going to give him a full-time seat. And you might say, well, should Kevin Magnussen think about moving into sports cars or doing Le Mans, something like that? Or would Halkenberg, who I think is a, a, an asset to the team, what do you do? How do you allow the young talent that is sitting there with a massive roadblock, you know, like a stop oil mentality, can't go anywhere, and then they all end up doing GT3 with my group, SRO, trying to take GT Challenge Europe, or they go into maybe over to America to IMSA. There's a roadblock of engineers as well as there is with drivers. Well, we're back to the 12, 14 teams. More drives, more opportunity. Uh, more opportunity. Certainly, that would make yeah. a, a, for the drivers, would make possibly up to four seats available. Well, last year, make it eight, yeah, four seats available plus another driver per team as the backup driver. So you'll have maybe six drivers who would have a form of contract of which four would be the regular drivers. But certainly, there needs to be a way to enable talent, both in the driver terms and on the engineering side, where they go, look, we've got Bernie, Bernie Collins. She's now our biggest asset, I think, in this program, because Bernie can bring knowledge and insight of things that I don't know about, because I'm not an engineer or a strategist. Or, or, and I'm listening to her at the weekend, and I think, Bernie is outstanding. And I don't know why she left Aston Martin. I'd love to know the reason. Yeah, I suppose it's a new challenge, isn't it? It's it's you're the other side of the whole thing. Shane, the Shane are you suggesting your program's a new challenge to Bernie Collins? <laughs> I think the, I think she's enjoying her broadcast role. I think she's doing a bloody I think good so. job. Ah, she's brilliant. In fairness, and she and she explains, as you say, John, like she explains some of the technical stuff that I certainly don't understand. Indeed, uh, in, in such a simple way, you know, which 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 makes it easier for the for the average Formula One fan, I guess. Uh, we should touch on we should touch on Ferrari, I guess, before we finish as well, because. Um, a surprise front row lockout, one and two, Leclerc and Sainz. Don't think many expected it at the weekend. Um, two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. I mean, it, it's pretty It's pretty amazing. But then you, you look at Charles Leclerc's, you know, 
pole record versus win record. That's now 10 consecutive races for him not converting pole into a race win. Is that is that a concern, lads? Well, I think that the Ferrari as a team is always a concern. Yeah, Leclerc clearly has got natural speed and he's had a number of pole positions, but converting it into, into victory has not happened. And probably the best chance that the team had was this weekend in Mexico, but didn't last long because Max slipped down the inside and then you have the continuity going on with Perez and Leclerc and Sainz, really, where's he going to stick his nose in? I think the whole thing about qualifying on Saturday was, was well, the qualifying day was based on Friday. The Friday the qualifying was done on Friday. Not forget it was, it was a sprint race. Am I getting confused? It was qualifying on Saturday or Friday? But we had a sprint race coming up and we'd won the sprint race this week, didn't we? Yeah, so the qualifying on Saturday, a big one, the qualifying track conditions, ambient conditions, how the tower interacts with both those uh, values just led to two quick drivers putting their cars in the front row of the grid. I don't think there's any other magic to it than that. And the the things that assisted Ferrari seemed to work against, to some degree, Red Bull, Mercedes, and then further down the grid. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, no the, consistency. So Saturday car, it's a one the one lap special. Um, do you blame the drivers? Is uh, is Leclerc not as as solid? Is I mean they're, they're certainly pushing each other, aren't they? For sure that uh, there's nothing to choose between them. So they're getting the most out of themselves, and if whether that's the most out of the automobile remains to be uh, uh, understood. Um, but Declan, Declan, once the, the lights went out, I never felt Ferrari was going to win that race. Yeah. Because all we had seen in qualifying was a single lap from the two Ferrari drivers put them on pole position. But over the course of the season, what we have seen is a, con- a continuity and consistency from Red Bull, particularly from Max, and to a degree from Lewis as well, but not as consistent as anywhere near Red Bull is doing. So I, I never yeah, they- anticipated a Ferrari victory at all. But all the Magnussen crashed a lap or two earlier. It would have been a, could have been a different well, race. Could they, they would have I, I, got track position back, wouldn't they? It would have been wonderful yeah. if. Well, we saw in Singapore, Sainz won the Grand Prix, and that was a great victory for Ferrari. But I didn't anticipate a victory for Ferrari. I don't know why. Just had a feeling in the water, as we say at home. Mm. Is the, uh, the one other t- talking about the kind of came out of the weekend was the the pit lane impeding. Um, mm. and look, nothing came of it from a from a. Uh, point of view of the FIA punishing anyone uh, and I think the explanation was that it's you're better off impeding the pit lane than impeding out on the track is this going to be something that that needs resolved or is it is it just a minor issue it's incredibly easy to fix all you do is you you make the cars a foot narrower and about two feet shorter which would be I mean there would be no. other benefits to that as well they're just yeah. big trucks aren't they it's the consumer oh. pit lanes are vast compared to John's ear they're the huge and yet these cars fill them pit yeah. lane in Mexico is a big pit lane but these cars are porkers now I couldn't call Declan a porker I couldn't call Shane a porker <laughs> but I can call the current Formula One cars porkers because they're not human <laughs> beings they're just mechanical devices and they're not going to be offended <laughs> it's a fair point it's a fair point maybe that is the solution uh Less porky F1 cars, possibly. Uh, Since the dawn of time, people have been trying to carve out a, a little bit of space on the racetrack that they can call their own and, and you know, have a nice sort of clean run in, in qualifying. Um, I mean, the easiest way to solve it, probably, without sort of, uh, you know, radically altering the automobiles, which is what we want to do, would probably be to uh, to go to a sort of shootout qualifying, one lap, everyone doing their own thing. I kind of like that back in the day. You know, we had that for a while in the early 2000s. Um it was stimulating. It was interesting. Uh, my 
the odd the the obvious solution again would be to turn the sprint race into a qualifying session you know reverse grid for the sprint race from the championship order and then you know the the finishing order from the sprint race is your grid for for Sunday and that might make sprint races a little bit more interesting hey, we talked about vested interests and how the teams are especially at the top with the most power are incapable of allowing a real change that might benefit them ultimately because it would benefit the sport or the, the sporting series um they won't do that in terms of money distribution and it appears as if they that added variable the possibility that they won't end up in just where they need to be uh is encouraging the likes of Red Bull and Mercedes, et cetera, to encourage the authorities. They're constantly moaning about it. They don't like it because it's a variable. They hate variables, you know, but we need variables or, they, or it isn't interesting. So I would make the sprint race, actually, I'd go against whatever whatever they're saying. I'd ignore them and go and, and make the sprint race a little bit more interesting. And that would, you know, stop pit lane. And okay, okay you'd still have a qualifying session for... No, you wouldn't actually. If you do reverse grid of the championship, yeah, that's the way. You, you, you can do a lot of things with the, the regulations and try and alter things. To be the core problem is the is the bulk, the size, and the weight of a current Formula One car, and that's only that's all because of one thing and one thing only. These are hybrid, battery powered or part battery powered Formula One cars. They weigh seven hundred and ninety whatever it is kilograms. Yeah, without without fuel and without the driver, I mean it's ridiculous. Mm. And if you want, what did your what did your Silkat Jaguar uh, Le Mans car weigh? What sort of that was around was about that? a thousand kilograms. Yeah, so similar. I mean, they're, yeah, they're like not a million sometimes. miles away. Okay, yeah. I don't know the weight when you put fuel and the driver in it, but certainly it was around about a thousand kilograms. The, the, look, I'm no fan of the current rules and regulations. I would like to see cars that look uh, more nimble. That are, are just, and also when we signed as a Formula One car, I remember sounding. Now I doubt we'll ever go back to that, but I think it, I think that the technical group within uh, Formula One are looking at ways to reduce the overall width of a car, maybe reduce the overall length of a car. But the core problem is you've got a stupid big lump of a battery stuck, which weighs itself a hundred kilograms, if not more. And then everything around that is built in. I mean, it is an enormous engineering challenge. And Formula One teams have done a phenomenal job in, in conquering that challenge. But is it really actually making motor racing better? Is it better for the sport in the future? Would it be better to go back to, uh, let's say, a, 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 a normally aspirated multi-cylinder engine that runs on synthetic fuels and just get rid of all this hybrid, whatever else, whatever else, because that is only there for one reason, principally, and that's to satisfy the manufacturers because of what they're doing in the manufacture of the road cars that they're trying to sell to the public. Yeah, yeah the FIA are 100% committed to, to electricity, but, you know, is hydrogen going to come in the next uh, few years? Will well, they but hydrogen, is a, hydrogen is a better solution than electric, but maybe not as in terms of how would you package your hydrogen, your, your fuel. Um, I think that synthetic fuels or biofuels, I mean, Porsche, for example, the Porsche Super Cup, which supports Grand Prix, those cars run on 100% synthetic fuels. Mm. Why can we not have a Formula One formula that runs on a pure synthetic fuel? It would hopefully be good for environmental purposes. I don't know if it would be any better or any worse than what we've currently got. I mean, the, the, the one thing I can say about the current Formula One cars is that for fuel volume, in other words, 
the petrol or whatever it is they put into the fuel tank compared to what going back to the 70s, we would have probably a, maybe a third to maybe a half more fuel than the current Formula One car uses. And we had a lot less horsepower. So the evolution of technology and design has, has, is, is unbelievable. But Safety is a part of the reason that those cars are huge as well, isn't it? In terms of crash impact structures. Itself. I mean, funny enough, I, when I saw the Magnuson crash, I was thinking of yourself in, in um, Monza in 81, which is sort of a watershed moment for the sport, wasn't it? Because it was just this absolutely enormous crash and everyone sort of held their breath and thought, because <clears throat> up till that point, yes. you kind of thought this is... This could it be. Was a, really it, was a, it, it, yeah. it had the looks of a, a you know, a, a, could be a nasty accident, but the tech pro barriers at that part of the circuit did the job that they were required to do. Now, I don't mm. think that necessarily taking weight out of a Formula One car equates to reducing safety. Take the battery out of the thing. You're taking 100 kilograms out. You can reduce the width of the car. You can reduce the the length of the car. Reduce the wheelbase. Make race cars that actually can go through slow corners rather than something like an articulated lorry. Mm-hmm. You could go yeah. three wide. Perez is going to win the race again. Yeah, <laughs> the past. Listen, yeah. Exactly. Declan, Declan, I can guarantee you there would be one or two drivers in the grid who could have said they could have done a better job around the outside than Perez did. Yeah, yeah potentially. No he names, no pack drill, but I bet you there's someone who could say they would have done a better job. But remember, Lewis did the same thing in Qatar tried to sweep around the outside of four cars going into turn one and clipped, was it Russell he clipped? And he was out of the race. Mm. So even the greatest, and Lewis, you might say currently, is he the greatest? Well, let's give him the accolade because he's won seven world championships and whatever number of Grand Prix. So he would have to be classified as greatest yeah. on that yeah. basis alone. Even he made an error of judgment. And I believe, and maybe other people have different opinions, had that incident not occurred, and had Lewis swept around the front of those three other cars, I reckon he would have won the Qatar Grand Prix because he, I think, was the physically best prepared driver of the entire field to sustain a pace in extremely you know, challenging challenging uh, conditions. Mm. So you went from 22nd to 1st in Detroit, wasn't it? And uh, 17th, from 17th to, to in, in Long Beach. No, the other way around. The other way around. All right, yeah. In Long Beach, yeah. anyway. I don't really remember myself, but I'll, I'll have a look up the books. But anyway, but overtaking in those days was also a function of a lot of cars retired. You know, reliability in, in the 80s was not anywhere near where it is now. Today's mm. reliability is exceptional. And we had two different time manufacturers. We were on Mishnah. Some of the competitors were on Goodyear. Let's bring back multi-tire companies. Let's not have, a, a, a sort of, what do you want to call it, a, a monopoly of one tire supplier. Mm. Pirelli, doing a, Pirelli is the biggest time manuf- race tire manufacturer in the world. What they do is just mind-boggling. But would it not be better to have maybe a Michelin team and a Bridgestone team and a Pirelli team and... Maybe, uh, what else is there? Who call? Or the, I mean, there are a number. Of, where are the first Firestone? Firestone is, okay, Firestone runs in America and Indica. When you've got two or three, then that in itself will make a, a multitude of changes to where Formula One goes. Oh, sorry, sorry, cost cap. We can't spend more money. Yeah. yeah. The, there's environmental the, issues around the amount of tires they'd be using, but you could still limit that, couldn't you? And well, you're limiting I mean, testing already. So, you know, yeah. like one more set of tires to a team. 
What difference? Is that going to stop the tree in my garden coming into leaf in the summertime? Please. <laughs> can I get, lads, we're, we're bang out of time, but can I get your, your predictions for, for Interlagos the weekend, Brazilian Grand Prix? I mean, even just looking at the results from last year, the Brazilian GP had a Mercedes 1-2, George Russell ahead of Lewis Hamilton, with Carlos Sainz third and Charles Leclerc fourth. Um, I mean, can we can we see past Max this weekend? Any surprise podiums for either of you, briefly? Weather. <laughs> the weather. All about the weather. San Paulo is at about two and a half, three thousand feet above sea level. You've got the same issues that you have in any race above sea level. So I think weather will be the ultimate arbiter. But on pace, nobody's going to beat Max. Nobody's going to beat him in Brazil. For you, Declan? Yeah, it's not. It's not to look beyond him, isn't it? I mean, but if you decide that you're going to, then um, Mercs have a great race car. Yeah, yeah. Ferrari have a good, uh, good car for Saturday. And mind you, uh, it's a sprint race, isn't it? And that's added variable. That lack of time to <clears throat> to get yourself organised is um, is is fundamentally a good thing. That's what's helping, actually. That's not, it's not, not even just having the sprint race, but just the reduced reduced amount of time to get hooked up for the weekend um, means that some teams are better organised quicker. So. Yeah, uh, I think Lewis, Lewis is going to get his win. Yeah, got to be yeah. fascinating. Lads, really, really enjoyed that as per usual. John and Declan, thanks a million. Cheers. Thank you very much. Good fun. Thanks, See you soon, thanks, Declan. Cheers. Yeah, yeah, cheers. Brilliant stuff. John Watson there, five-time Grand Prix winner in Formula 1. And Declan Quigley, motorsport <laughs> journalist and broadcaster, will be back reviewing the uh, Brazilian Grand Prix in Sao Paulo in Inter- Interlagos on next week's F1 pod. We'll see you then. Good luck. The F1 pod on Off the Ball with Chicago Town Pizza. Formula One? Yeah, we go to town on it.